Well, here we go. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about parables, and we've been talking about parables for several weeks. We've talked about why Jesus teaches parables, uh, and every week it's a new and different parable. And it, i got to tell you, it's been a blast for me. It's been a lot of fun looking at these different parables, and Jesus taught so many different types of parables. Uh, and so we're going to look at a really fun one this morning. Um, I took my son camping a few weeks ago, and turns out he has what's called the Billings Gene. The Billings gene is whenever you're close to water, you hear the fish talk to you. And so I would ask Zach, what do you want to do? And he would say, let's go fishing. And then we would get done fishing and we'd go back to the cabin. I'd say, what do you want to do now? And he'd go, I don't want to go fishing again. Fishing. This is what my dad did with me. My dad would fish and fish and fish and he, he would swear he could hear the fish. And so I had these young memories as a boy going out with my dad early in the morning, either fly fishing or in a boat or a canoe. And the, the first thing my dad would do is he'd make sure both poles were ready to go. He'd make sure all the lines were correct, the bait was right, it flies or live bait or whatever we were using. He'd hand me my pole, and then he would have his pole, and we'd start fishing. And inevitably, as, as a young child and even as a full-grown adult, a couple of casts later, and you see this knot a fishing line on your pole, and you're like, how in the world? I'm just doing this, and it's like, oh, twist, it's like this big. And so instinctively, what I would do as a boy is I would say, Dad, can you help me? And I would hand him my fishing pole. And my dad would say, sure, and he'd hand me his, and he'd say, keep fishing. You gotta have one, at least one line in the water at all times. And he would meticulously, he had magnifying glasses and like little hooks and tools and tweezers, and he'd pull this thing apart and, and untangle this knot and then he wouldn't stop there. He would heat the lineup with the patch of leather. Have you ever seen this? You heat the lineup so it doesn't kink in the water, so it's nice and straight. And then he'd go, okay, here you go, son. And he'd hand me back my pole, and I would hand him his, and then we'd keep fishing. Four or five casts later, big knot again. And my dad was, was incredibly patient. And he would always give me his pole, take my pole, fix it, hand it back to me, over and over. While fishing with my son, I realized the same thing. For some reason, children have this just innate ability to say, can you fix this? I can't do it. And then I would take the pole, and I wasn't quite as good as my dad, but I would untangle it, and I would hand it back to him, and he would hand me his, and we'd keep fishing. And we did have success. Just one, but still, success is success. So we had a good time. As we, as we transition into this parable, I think we're going to see some similarities in that. And this parable is um, a fascinating parable. It's the parable of the, uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's maybe not super well-known. We talked about the Good Samaritan last week, so I figured we'd, we'd slide into one that's not quite as well-known this morning. But it's an interesting one, and it's coming to us. We're going to read it out of Luke uh, chapter 18, 9 uh, through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull those out. Um, I'm going to be reading it out of the NIV, but you know, any, any translation will, will do for us this morning. 9 through 14, uh, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident... Of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. That's a rough way to start. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amazing piece of scripture. So simple, yet there's so much there. You know, you know we read this quickly, and I just read it to you, and you probably quickly understand there's two groups, right? There's the people that are like the Pharisee, and there's the people that are like the tax collectors. There's those who think highly of themselves and those who think uh, they are humble. But I think there's something a little bit deeper going on. You might be saying, okay, if, if you just read that, we get the idea, humility is the goal, right? If humility is the goal, we can read this parable, humility is the goal, okay, good. We can just end the service now, and we can just all out and be more humble. Let's just go out and be more humble, okay? That would be great. Let's be more humble. But being humble, when I say it that way, sounds a lot like just try harder, doesn't it? We talked about last week, the, the, the Good Samaritan, a lot of people look at that parable as just something to kind of move us to try to be better people. Just try a little bit more. Try a little bit harder. And, and I don't think it's that easy. I, I don't think it's just try harder. Because if it was just try harder, just be more humble, I think the Pharisee would probably take the top prize. He's the one that's working. He's the one that has, since a child, memorized scripture. And he's so dedicated, he not only tithes a tenth of all he gets, which was a lot. Pharisees made a lot of money. He also fasts twice a week. Wow, fasting twice a week. I think he gets the top prize for trying hard, right? But Jesus is after something else. What is Jesus looking for? Why did he tell this parable? And I think the simple answer is obviously in verse 9. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, great. So this parable is directed toward those who think they're uh, really great, <laughs> think they're really important, think they're really much you know, better than everybody else. But I have, a, I have a question. Who are those people? You know, Jesus is telling the story uh, as a parable. So, so he's not like actually telling the story about um, Pharisee Joe and tax collector Eddie. He's telling these, these people are fictitious peoples, and he's using them to teach us a lesson. But in real life, who are these people that are so self-righteous they look down on everyone else? Well, have you ever met a self-righteous person? Could you, could you identify what makes them self-righteous? But just show of hands. Has anybody met a self-righteous person? Anybody? A few people? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. There we go. It took a second, but we, it dug in. Is that self-righteous person here? Don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> They'll know, they'll know, okay, don't do that. It feels like uh, the, the self-righteous people that I've met are, are the people that are always watching. You know, they're always watching, and, and you do something really stupid, uh, and, and, they, and their eyes are on you. They may not comment right away, but you can feel them looking at you, and you're like, oh, man, they saw that, I messed up. Those people... They're always looking. They're always watching. It's like they're too clean. Have you ever met someone that's like too clean? I don't mean physically. I don't think you can be too clean physically. But too clean, like everything they do is perfect. You go, Man, you're almost too clean. What's, what's up with that? You can always tell when you're talking to a self-righteous person by the way they talk about others to you. Have you noticed this? So in order to be self-righteous, you have to have kind of sifted people. And know where people are. You have to be able to, it's like a filter that you have. And you're like a rating scale. Well, I feel like I'm more righteous than other people, so they're going to tell you what those other people are like. 
Have you ever wondered, if they're talking about those people that way, what are they talking about me? How are they talking about me? Well, have you ever met a self-righteous person who will readily admit they're self-righteous? Probably not. I haven't either. The times that I've been self-righteous, there's no way I would admit, admit that. And there's a reason. There's a reason because self-righteousness basically removes your ability to look at yourself and analyze yourself. And not only removes that ability, but even deeper, it, re it removes the ability for you to, to, to judge your own motives. You know, our motives, in the, the, the reason we make the decisions that we make, the reason we say the things we say, the reason we do the things we do, that's a, that's a mixed bag. Because we have this thing called sin, and it gets in the way, and it, it entangles, and it twists, just like my, my fishing line off the back of the canoe. The solution for us is not just to be more humbler-ish. That's not the goal. It, because if that's the goal, we're going to start walking down the path of the Pharisee. Because he tried harder than anybody. In fact, his motives were probably at some point somewhat pure. You can't, tie, you can't um, uh, fast without the understanding of, I'm going to give this thing up in order for God to show me what he wants me to know. That's the concept of fasting. I'm going I'm to sacrifice this thing to kind of clear away all the distractions so God will be able to speak to me. You can't start fasting without an understanding of humility, at least an understanding of it. He's fasting twice a week. So you can't create humility in yourself. It's like the Pharisee saying, I'm going to be more humble than anyone. <laughs> I'm going to get the top prize for humility. Yeah, I'm going to be the best at being humble. Kind of the opposite of humility, right? I want to read you something. This is coming to us from the Psalms. It's a Psalm of David, like many Psalms are. Psalm 139. You don't have to turn there, but it's 23 and 24. I think when you hear this, you'll get just a glimpse at why David was a man after God's own heart. And it wasn't because David worked really hard at being humble. Preview. Okay, here we go. 23 of uh, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see what David did there? He took, he took his motives out of the picture. And he readily said, I don't know. I just don't know. He was one of the most famous kings in the Bible. And, and, you know, a man after God's own heart. And it wasn't because he tried super, super hard to be humble. It's because he gave that ball of fishing line to his daddy. And he said, I can't do it. I, I can't. I, I, there's no way I can do this. And David did that over and over and over and over. Search me and know me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is what we need to know this morning. God is the only one that can produce genuine humility in our hearts. This is something the tax collector came into his prayer already understanding. I'm a sinner. I got nothing. I don't know how to untangle this ball. 
I've got my motives. I've got good motives. I've got bad motives. I've got my dad's motives. I've got my mom's motives. I've got the way life is supposed to work motives. And I'm all confused. Which ones are good? Which ones are bad? And I have to take a minute and tell you guys, I'm the first one to say I have no idea about my motives. I admit to you, it's a confession. Just about everything I do, I go, mm, there's a little part of that that kind of strokes my ego. A little part of that statement makes me kind of want you guys to go, oh, he knows what he's talking about. Everything I do, there's a little bit of sin involved. And if I try to sort that out, two things are going to happen. One is the least likely. The first one is the least likely. It's like, a, I'll just get frustrated and give up. That's least likely if I'm on my own. The, the more likely one is I'm going to convince myself of something. I'm going to fast twice a week. I'm going to convince myself that I'm humble. I might even carefully, calculatedly wear humility, humility like a badge. And before you know it, my prayers start sounding like, oh, God, I'm so thankful. Maybe, maybe they sound they're a little bit not as aggressive as the Pharisees. Maybe there's something like, God, I'm so glad of what you've done in me. I'm so glad that you've made me humble. <laughs> and it, it's a slippery slope. That's so different from David's prayer. No, the goal isn't to be more humbler-er. The goal is to lay this mixed bag of emotions and motives at God's feet and say, you deal with it. I can't. I've got, I've got no idea how to untangle that fishing line. The path to humility is submission, not hard work. Although hard work is important and it's good. Don't hear me say it's not. But it's not the path. God Submission to Christ is the path. The path to soft-heartedness. Soft-heartedness. Asking Christ to search you and lead you. That's the only way we're going to get there. The thing is, is we're, we're very intelligent. We're so intelligent we can trick ourselves. The heart is tricky. And it can deceive us. If you don't believe me, just look at all the political unrest we've got going on in our world right now. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of these moments where I look at the, the screen in front of me and my, my mouth comes open and my jaw drops and I go, how can they do that? So much hatred, so much racism. There's so much opinion. And I just want to say, guys, will you just, just soften your heart? You know, we look at these things that are happening on the TV on the news. And we look at these people, and, and I, I personally have looked at the faces of these people. And I have looked at them and gone, my gosh, they're monsters. Who could justify driving a car into a bunch of people, no matter what those people were doing? Who could justify that? In my mind, I go, it's a monster? It's a monster. But it's a monster who thought he was right. And you don't get there overnight. You don't get there overnight. That's the tricky part. This is, this is a half a step at a time, year after year, of me thinking that I'm right. Pretty soon, I'm fasting twice a week, and I'm telling everybody about it. Pretty soon, I'm the most humble that I know. And oh, isn't it wonderful what God has revealed to me and not you? 
And there's this void and this distance starts to grow between me and the rest of the world. And pretty soon you can justify the most heinous things because you're right and you've convinced yourself of it. It's a scary, scary thing. It takes hard-heartedness and mixed motives over time, sin in our motives over time, and it produces violence, hatred, racism. And it's easy for us to look on the TV and go, oh my gosh, those people are so weird. They're, they're so out there. They're, such, they're monsters. They're so different. But all it takes, all it takes is you to think you're right no matter what. And slowly the enemy starts to lead you down a path. And it's scary where we end up. Man's heart is sinful. And it will, without the Holy Spirit, lead to devastating places. So to turn us inwardly now, let's focus on ourselves for a minute. If you've ever tried to seriously work through your motives, if you've ever tried to sit down and go, why did I just do that? I was just in a board meeting. Why did I say what I said? Why did I just tell my boss what I told him? Why did I just treat a customer that way? Whatever it is, good or bad. And then you said, was that for me or was that for a nobler cause? If you seriously tried to do that, you will drive yourself mad. You will drive yourself crazy. It's not going to work. Or worse, there's worse things than madness. You'll convince yourself that you're pure. You'll convince yourself that your motives are where they need to be and you did it for the right cause. The only way the only way we can soften our hearts is by laying our motives down at Jesus' feet and saying, I can't do it. I don't know. Lead me in the way everlasting, David says. I'm following. Just lead me. And first John has something similar. He says, uh, John, in, in, in his book, uh, letter First John, uh, chapter 1, 7 through 9, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this is me stepping out into the light and going, oh, it's going to be ugly. I know. I'm completely exposed. All my motives before the Lord, I, here I am, God. Lead me in the way everlasting. There's a couple ways. A couple of things I'm going to suggest to you on how to get us started laying down our motives at Jesus' feet. The first thing we have to ask. We have to ask. We can't begin the process of softening our hearts with willpower. Don't worry. Willpower will come in very handy. <laughs> a couple more steps. We can't begin the journey of humility with discipline, control, and ability. Well, in my experience, what I have found that produces humility in me is if I just try really hard, it's not going to work. The only way to start is begging, pleading, crying out to Jesus that he would sift us and know us and, and show us what is wrong inside. And then leading us down the path of dealing with it. Search me. God and know my heart. We have to ask him. See, one of the hardest things about a hard heart 
is that God says, okay, if that's the way you want in your heart, you can have it. He's not going to force soft-heartedness on you. It's for those who have ears to hear, as Jesus says in so many of his parables. It's for those who, who get it, who want to get it more. So we ask. First thing. The second thing is we analyze. And we may not be very good at this. I'm not good at this. Analyze. We can't ask and assume he's just going to do it. We can't say, Lord, sift me and know me. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All my motives are good. He's going to say, well, I showed you, but you, but you didn't want to do the work. There's the willpower part. Here's where the willpower comes in. Once he shows you, you partner with Jesus. You partner with him and you say, help me deal with this. Help me deal with this little problem of just loving to be right so much I don't care who I put down. Help me with that. Every time I do that, Lord, would you indicate to me Every time that I, ooh, I love to get a piece of juicy gossip and I like to tell people about it. Every time that thought pops in my head, God, would you help me? And then you work on it and you analyze it. We have to analyze ourselves. We have to look in the mirror with Jesus and ask him where the areas are that need my attention. And he'll show you. And be prepared because it might be painful. That thing you thought you were doing for pure motives and you're really good at, you might not have pure motives there. So we ask. We analyze ourselves with him. And this is the hardest part. We accept. We accept. This is where the heart gets a little squirrely. We don't want to accept that. I don't want to believe that what I'm doing here has mixed motives or the way I just responded to that email has mixed motives. I don't want that. But I have to accept that we are works in progress. And by the way, if you think you're a work in progress, that by definition means you're no better than anyone else. If you think that you have not arrived yet, you're leveling the playing field. That's important. You know, we're smart people. We understand when people talk to us, we can sense motives, we can pick up on them. They're little cues, subconscious or, or body language or whatever, and we know. We can feel it. But when you say, you don't know, no, wait, I'm a work in progress that reduces it and, it and it levels the playing field. And now when we're talking to people, they go, wow, oh, he, he or she thinks he's a work in progress. It, it, me too. And, and it levels it. It's important. So we accept. We have to accept that Jesus will continue to guide us down the path of humility at his own pace. Sometimes that looks like three meetings in a row where God's going, hello, your motives are wrong. And it hurts. And I come home exhausted and worn out because I've just seen how many things are wrong inside of me. And then thankfully, Jesus will back it off a little bit. And I can take a break and I can trust him and I can move and I can, I can take one more step in accepting that he's guiding me. It's scary because I'm not in control. And sometimes the pace seems like like a, a sprint, doesn't it? It seems like a sprint. Like, oh my gosh, this week, everything I did, I felt like it was wrong. How is this possible? So you have to accept that God is guiding you. And what you're experiencing is actually good for you, even though it hurts. It doesn't feel good to look like an idiot. <laughs> kind of a pro at it, I should know. Sometimes the pace feels like a crawl. It feels like we're just dragging along. And the same lesson over and over and over, and you're going, God, I get it, I get it. 
He's going, not yet, not yet, you know. So why? It sounds like a whole lot of pain and work I just suggested we willingly go through with happy, joyous smiles on our, on our faces. It's because the heart becomes harder if it's left alone. If you're sitting here going, you know what, this just seems like a lot right now. I've got a lot of stress in my life, or I've got a lot of things going on. Maybe Christmas time I'll start thinking about that, or, or whatever. When you leave your heart alone, and you have to believe me, when you leave your heart alone, it gets harder. If you don't address it, it just gets worse. And you're taking one more step, and one more step. Humans have this amazing ability, with no help from anyone else, to convince ourselves of all kinds of lies. If we don't ask, analyze, and accept, we will convince ourselves that we are an elite, that we, that we haven't figured out, that everyone else is just crazy. We will convince ourselves that we are right before we even know what we're right about. We go into situations knowing that we're right before we even know. Don't ignore it. I'm begging you. I'm begging you because I need you to do this, just like you need me to do this. We need, as a church, we need to do this. Ask, analyze, and accept. Oh, what we can do. What the Spirit would do through us if we all laid down our motives at Jesus' feet and said, I can't do this. Help me. Oh, my gosh. It would be amazing. Not only would Clifton Park hear about Grace Chapel, the state would hear about Grace <laughs> Grace Chapel. The, the country would hear about Grace Chapel. All of our motives, lay them down. People would know. People would hear. And they would come to us and they'd say, my gosh, why, why do you guys love each other so much? And we could say, God's just leading us in the way everlasting. That's all this is. Just his journey, his path that we're on. That's what happens when we ask, analyze, and accept your kids need you to do this. My kids need me to do this. Your family needs this from you. Your boss definitely needs this. Your coworkers need this. Ask, analyze, and accept. Lay them down. Lay the motives down, especially the ones that you think you're the most right in. Because it's really important that God leave you, lead you in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our guide. Thank you for being our, our sifter. Thank you for being our daddy on a canoe, untangling our fishing line. You are a good God. And no matter how many times we get that line tangled, you're willing to untie it for us. And you're willing to give us your pole too. Thank you for being a God who loves us so much that if we ask, you will make us better. You will, over time, help us become more humble. Lord, I ask if there's anybody in this room who thinks that they've arrived or, or, or maybe is, is a closet self-righteous Pharisee, that, that they would be able to break down that wall and lay it at your feet and just say, God, help. I don't know. I don't know if what I'm doing is right or not. Guard our hearts and lead them in the way everlasting so that we can reflect your love and your glory 
and your desire for the world to know you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the hearts of these people. Thank you for being in them and moving them. It's an honor to be here, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with us and sing this last song together? And the ushers can come forward to accept the offering. <laughs>